hurricanes, hailstorms, tornadoes, and wildfires. These are just some of the weather hazards that displace families and disrupt lives. Many of us are familiar with the scenes of devastation these hazards cause, and the recovery process for affected communities can take months, even years. In the most extreme circumstances, some may never be whole again. This may prompt many of you to ask, what's being done to reduce the risks associated with these hazards? To answer this question, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety presents the Disaster Discussions Podcast. Join me, your host, Armand Brody, as I sit down with professionals in the insurance, science, construction, and resiliency industries who will help us explore the intersection of these hazards with the built environment. We'll bring you in-depth conversations with experts from across the country and highlight how science is engineering real-world solutions for home and business owners to create safer, more resilient communities. Join us for these discussions every month. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, go subscribe to the Disaster Discussions podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also invite you to engage with us on social media to ask your questions, share your thoughts, and to learn more about the IBHS mission. From the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, we welcome you to the Disaster Discussions podcast, where we explore the intersection of severe weather and the built environment. I'm your host, Armand Brody. Let me, uh, if you would allow me a moment to thank you folks uh, for your response to our most recent episode of the podcast. Our interview with Alabama Insurance Commissioner Mark Fowler was well received. We went over an hour talking about everything from Charles Barkley to Bo Jackson to Taylor Swift to the Iron Bowl to uh, the great work that's been done in Alabama relative to Fortified and all that it means for the citizens of that great state. So thank you for your response to the podcast. As a reminder, if you would please leave us those really nice five-star reviews and uh, subscribe to the podcast. If you've not done that, you can also, of course, watch us on YouTube and follow us on social media across the board at IBHS underscore org and IBHS org. You can always go to uh, IBHS.org slash disaster discussions podcast. We are here for you and we thank you so much for your response to the podcast. We believe in the work we're doing here and you are helping make this possible. We're getting this education out to so many people around the world and we thank you for that. Well, we're at the desk, so there must be something different going on because usually for those of you who watch the podcast, I am sitting by the LED wall, but not today. It's been a turbulent first half of 2023 weather-wise, bringing with it all kinds of destruction and it it begs the question, what's going on? Well, to answer this question, we're going to do a little bit of an IBHS roundtable. We're calling it On the Radar. Hopefully, this will be the start of a series of episodes as uh, the opportunities present themselves, where we just bring in IBHS folks, meteorologists, engineers, brilliant minds from across the the, uh, Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, and they're just going to talk. We're going to talk, have a somewhat informal conversation about all of the chaos that we've seen happening in the first half of 2023 here, weather-wise, and to uh, help us explore all of this and also talk about the steps that we can take here, we bring in our senior research, our senior meteorologist, Sarah Dillingham, and our lead research meteorologist and senior director for standards and data analytics, Dr. Ian Jamanko. Welcome to you both. Thank you both for being here. 
Yeah, thanks for having us here, Armando. It's exciting. Uh, this is the first time I've been here at the desk with you in the studio, so I'm happy for it to, to be on such an important topic that's really been affecting a lot of people. And I know Ian and I, we've been talking a lot about this internally, so um, we're excited to be able to share that with you guys. Ian, nice to be with you again. You were with us on our second episode. We talked about Back to the Future of Hail, and you are back again, sir. Nice to have you with us. Yeah, it's good to be back on, and yeah, it's been a it's been a pretty active, really uh, all the all of 2023 so far. If you take it from floods all the way to the severe thunderstorm realm, uh, it has been a busy first half of the year. So I'll simply start with you know this question just to get some reaction before we go into the analysis. So what's going on? Um, well, everything. Uh, the atmosphere is broken. Uh, no. So, um, you know, we were talking about this and we were thinking about, you know, well, let's talk about all the severe weather we've been having. It's like, well, wait a minute. Let's back it up all the way to January 1st, 2023, right? Because it was, if you're in California, it was the year of the atmospheric river, right? And that's these streams of moisture that come off the Pacific Ocean. And these are really vital, though, to the California and Western ecosystem. They rely on these for most of their water in the year. Unfortunately, when you get the number um, that they did, I believe there was maybe nine, uh, there were nine atmospheric rivers that impacted the region this year. Um, and that was mostly through uh, the winter and spring. Um, and it just brought tremendous amounts of rainfall. We also saw really the severe season never really uh, dipped down very much. We maybe had a few uh, few weeks there off and on where we didn't have severe weather, but it was kind of a, a rinse and repeat situation with all these systems coming in, in the west and then dipping into the plains and then in the southeast and, and bringing those um, episodes of severe weather. So we've seen a very impactful 2023 so far. We're not even halfway through the year. And so we're trying to think ahead. What does the atmosphere hold in store? Because we know it's been so impactful already. I mean, we've been talking about the numbers of billion dollar disasters. We're already at seven, mm -hmm. seven for the year. And so that, that means that those singular events each cost a billion dollars, but that's not counting for the other events that maybe didn't reach a billion dollars, but in total have cost billions of dollars right. um, to our homes and businesses that were impacted. And that's from NOAA, the National Oceanic mm -hmm. and Atmospheric Administration. And I think the average for the last three years mm -hmm. total was eight. Yeah, eight to 10 for the last several years. So and when we've been seeing our last 20 years or so, I think, but we've been seeing in recent uh, years, record numbers of billion dollar disasters. And so, you know, it, it really is a, a reflection of kind of uh, the the combination of our built environment and these natural hazards. And we're just seeing very negative results. And Ian and I are going to talk about why that is. Is it the storms? Is it our buildings? Like, like, what is it that's going on? And that's some of the things that we're going to break down today. Right. Ian, analysis from you, sir. Yeah, I think what we what we've seen is kind of a breakdown of what was the semi permanent drought that was caused by really kind of a persistent ridge of high pressure over the western third of the U.S. Well, that broke down. We got into a progressive pattern that um, didn't exactly resemble the La Nina state that we were in. If, if when you look at the atmospheric river configuration. But for whatever reason, we broke that pattern down. We, we had been in this kind of stagnant, you know, ridge of high pressure over the Western US that kind of helped feedback. There was a feedback loop between the drought and that, but we, we got out of it. And, and there's kind of an old saying that droughts end in floods. And that's exactly what we saw. We saw really uh, absurd snow totals across the Sierra that needed it badly, uh, given the water shortages in many of the reservoirs of that part of the world. Uh, then we transitioned kind of from that that I say atmospheric weirding 
over to this, this transition out of La Nina that started to resemble more like what we actually would expect climatologically from severe weather. Well, we start with big severe weather in the southeast U.S. It starts to shift west and north with time. And we saw that spread, you know, from March to April out of the southeast into the southern plains. And that's where we kind of stand today. And we've seen a big uptick relative to uh, really the last two years that have been kind of benign years in total severe weather activity, especially on the hail front. So you, you get to hear about hail with me, everybody, as always. Um, last year was a pretty down year in, in hail occurrence, but this year we're on we're, we're back on pace again. So it, it, it's kind of all these different pieces and parts that come together and start to play off each other, whether it's the oceanic conditions driving the atmosphere, the atmosphere driving the ocean. That, that's kind of where we are right now. Pardon the pun, but it does seem to be a perfect storm, if yeah. you will. Um, give me, a, Sarah, if you will, we did a, uh, you did a voiceover uh, on Instagram mm -hmm. about La Nina. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about its influence, what it is, and yeah. what role it's been playing in what we've been seeing? Yeah, so if, you know, you've probably been hearing a lot this season about the, the La Nina that we've had, and now we may be transitioning to El Nino conditions. Ian referenced it just a moment ago. Um, but what this is, is a, um, it's a, uh, a cooling of the ocean waters in the eastern Pacific Ocean. Um, that's the cool phase, this La Nina. What that does is that ineffectually um, changes those wind patterns that will actually affect what happens downstream. So that changes our um, upper level jet stream patterns, which ultimately carries our storm systems across the United States and across the globe. Um, and so when we have these uh, instances develop, that does develop uh, or affect things downstream. So we were in the cool phase with these cooler waters in La Nina. La Nina tends to favor this active uh, jet stream coming into the West and Pacific Northwest, and also the severe weather in parts of the central and southeastern United States, particularly in the winter and early spring seasons. And we really did see that reflected in some of the severe weather events that we saw. Now, contrast that with the warm phase of that, where these ocean waters in the eastern Pacific are warmer than average, that's the El Nino phase of this. Um, and so that also then has uh, rippling effects. And we, while we'll spend a lot of time across different perils, we will touch hurricanes, which if we are headed into an El Nino year, that can have ramifications for wind shear in the Atlantic Basin and um, how active that tropical season might be. And we've seen La Ninas typically favor more active tropical seasons. Uh, we certainly had that in 2020, 2021. So we actually had a three-peat La Nina, which is very rare but now, as Ian mentioned, the atmospheric weirdness, mm -hmm. uh, we seem to quickly transition out of this cool phase, and now suddenly we saw this rapid warming. Now, there are certain criteria that need to be met um, before NOAA officially declares um, an El Nino to be in effect. However, we are very much watching that because we know that that does have effects to our patterns downstream. Ian, any meat you want to put on that bone? Yeah, Sarah kind of hit it. You know, We started off of what would have been a traditional kind of La Nina Southeast severe pattern. Uh, even to the point where we look back at the the outbreak that affected the uh, the south, really from Mississippi northward, that turned into one of the top ten of all time. Um, and then we shifted into this transition zone. And kind of anecdotally, I used to always hear when I was a student from the forecasters in the Great Plains that the transition years from from La Nina to El Nino or El Nino to La Nina, right in the middle, is when you you get some of the bigger Great Plains severe seasons. Now, there's not much in the way of published research on that. But sometimes you, you can take the combination of all these forecasters' insights from over the years, and it does play out. And I, I think we're actually seeing that. Even though this week's even been a little bit of a lull in activity, it's still kind of ramping up. There's a couple of risks out there for, for you know, today, tomorrow, uh, even down the road into Friday of this week as we're recording this podcast. So 
you know, it's been, uh, I mean, we're going on seven, eight weeks straight now of uh, this kind of pattern as, as these storm systems just continue to kind of march across the country, which is something we have not seen really in the past few years. We got into much more stagnant patterns. Um, so it's going to feel like this is real new and, and very different because we've been locked into some of these stagnant patterns in the, the, the past few years. Mm-hmm. And Ann, I'll speak to that just a little bit. I, I think like anecdotally, some friends of mine, we've been kind of chatting and like, you know, it's, it's been really, it's been cool here lately, right? Where you see it starting to get warmer now. It's like, well, maybe it's just normal. Finally, maybe we got out of what that, that stuck pattern had been because I think here in the Southeast, we're so used to those um, early warming trends and then it just gets warm and, and hot. And next thing you know, it's um, still spring, but it's already 90 degrees. We're mm-hmm. like, what gives? Uh, but now that we've kind of seen a little bit of a, a flip in that pattern and seen more progressive patterns, we've actually had more storm systems come through. So those temperature variations have been knocked back down. So I don't I don't actually think I got to look at the stats to see if that really bears out, but at least it's felt like it's been cooler. But I'm not so sure that that's abnormal. I think it's just a little bit of a return to average for us. But that doesn't mean that it's average everywhere. It might have to tick up somewhere because the atmosphere is a seesaw, right? What happens in one place, the exact opposite may happen upstream or downstream. Um, so it really doesn't matter where you are in it. Um, but we know, unfortunately for us, we've been in a lot of the storm systems and these progressive patterns that have brought all of these um, these damaging events. I'm always uh, interested in climate change because I don't want the term to just exist as some theory or right. some thing that doesn't really have a connection to what's happening in people's lives in the day-to-day. Ian, can you touch on what role climate change has had and what we've seen play out so far in 2023? Yeah, you know, a, a couple of things with climate. It is the, is the locking into these stagnant patterns, um, and that, that's going to affect all the types of weather. Um, the buckling of the, the jet stream that we see much more frequently um, one of the bigger signals that we sort of have, have latched onto that matches a lot of the climate modeling is the shift in tornado and severe weather activity into the southeast U.S. That's been very persistent over the last decade, even more. Um, we do think what we're seeing in the climate modeling is playing out in reality. And if you talk to folks, like they'll tell you something feels different, right? You know, humans anecdotally, it's it's hard to really grasp long-term trends. We we don't have great memories. But when people start to like, hey, this is different, something is different, and you see that theme repeatedly across diff- different kind of demographics of people, different regions, then you're like, okay, I, I think people really are grasping that that things are changing. So it's hard to pin down, you know, especially with severe convective storms. It's such a small scale feature, like diagnosing the climate impact on that one given thunderstorm is, is, is very, very, very difficult. But from a large scale pattern, I do think what we're starting to see is, is some of the things in the climate modeling space starting to play out in reality, like it's here. Um, but we also know that climate, it's just a piece of the puzzle. And, and right now, one of the big problems, we, we have so much stuff in the way. Um, our cities are much bigger. We had the, the huge urban suburban sprawl of the 80s, 90s that's still at play. Even though we've actually condensed a little bit, that, that sprawl has slowed down. It still turned places that were farmland, you know, 30, 40 years ago into dense suburban neighborhoods. We build bigger houses on bigger lots, but we sandwich them closer together. When, when bad weather hits them, that's a lot of material that gets damaged. That's material that has to get replaced. And the dollars, just the cash register sits there going cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching over and over and over again. Sarah, it reminds me of uh, that old saying that uh, too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. <laughs> right. Ian said it so, so bluntly. 
We got too much stuff in the way. We have too much stuff in the way. And then kind of playing off of the um, too much of a good thing, right? That We kind of talked about that with the the precipitation in the West, right? We know they've been dealing with um, extensive drought for years and years and years. Mega drought, a lot of people will call it. Um, but like getting all that snow and all that rainfall all at once, that causes its own problems. And that's led to one of its a billion dollar disasters that we've seen this year in the spring, which we had the, uh, the snow and then the subsequent rainfall. And a note on the climate thing. So, um, as Ian kind of pointed out, right, we know that in, in the way of the pattern, that's, the, that's some of the impacts that we're seeing. Um, but what climate change does is it kind of supercharges our atmosphere, right? We're seeing, seeing things more souped up, right? So if we're, Here's the chain of events. If we are increasing the temperatures globally, what we are also doing is increasing the atmosphere's ability to, one, contain moisture, water vapor, right? We feel that in like the humidity in the air, right? And also the atmosphere's ability to evaporate more moisture because if I can hold more moisture, I can take more from somewhere. So what happens is if you end up in uh, underneath one of these big upper level lows, it just kind of persists and you get this um, funnel of warm, moist air. You have constant storminess over the same areas. Well, what's that going to do? If I've got more water in the atmosphere, I can precipitate more out. So that's what happens. We get a stuck pattern and we've got higher rainfall rates. Well, when you put that in a built environment in a place where it can't drain fast enough, you get floods. And when you intersect those with homes and stuff, that's where we see those things take place. Conversely, on the other side, you end up underneath one of these massive ridges like in the west where heat uh, heat kind of builds and then that causes drought because we're evaporating moisture more effectively out of the soils so we can make it drier, we can make it hotter. Then also impacts wildfire seasons because we dry out vegetation. That's the thing, right? It's the seesaw. You moisten everything, get a lot of rainfall, the vegetation will grow. When the next drought comes, it will dry out, more fuel for the fire. So we just end up in this cycle. So what climate, uh, you know, climate attribution science, as Ian was pointing out, is very difficult to say, like, this event was caused by climate change. That is difficult. We can't just say that immediately after an event. What we have seen, though, are the ingredients being more favorable for these conditions to set up for these extreme weather events. And that's really the takeaway. And we do see that reflected also in the numbers um, economically and how, um, how disasters are, are costing our economy. So we don't see cake, but we see a whole lot of batter. Yes. <laughs> um, Sarah, let's, let me stay with you. Um, your observations, concerned about snow loads mm-hmm. in the West. Tell me about mm-hmm. what those concerns were from your vantage point. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about, um, if you think about if you're standing in the ocean and a wave hits you, you feel like how, how heavy water is. Well, all this precipitation, it has a weight, right? So snow, um, it has a weight. Um, d- depending on the temperature, um, the snow can be more of a wet snow, gloppy snow, you know, that packs the snowball really well, or it can be that really light, fluffy snow. We get that in those colder temperatures where it's lower water content of the snow. But when we have these atmospheric rivers and we get these very wet events that are cold enough to snow, we also end up with, one, a lot of snow, and it's a lot of heavy, wet snow. So that eventually, over time, weighs down on rooftops if they are not built to withstand those. Uh, in the West, where they do, especially in the Sierra, where they are frequented by, um, hopefully, busy uh, snow seasons, because that is their water supply for the year to come, um, you see a lot of steep sloped roofs, and that's going to allow that snow to fall off, and it's going to redistribute those loads differently across the roof. What can happen, though, is when you have more of these low-sloped roofs, older homes potentially, um, commercial roofs that are a little bit more flat and not well-maintained, that's when those snow loads can really start to weigh down. You can even have some roof collapses. And we did see that uh, in some of these areas um, uh, in the West where they just got, um, you know, I guess like maybe as much as 100 inches of snow, you know, in a couple of days. 
Um, and so when you put all that weight on the on a roof, if it's not uh, maintained properly or built properly properly to withstand the weight of that, it can cause structural issues to the home. So we offer guidance um, on that here at IBHS for home and business owners, right, to try and clear some of that snow off the roof if you can, or at least maintain things and what to look for inside. And maybe that might be signifying your roof is, is struggling. And what, what intrigues me is the fact that a lot of what we're talking about from a mitigation standpoint, it's not earth shattering things that people yeah. have to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not some life, it's not life altering things that you yeah. need to do in order to make sure mm -hmm. that your house is still standing. Can you right. touch on that? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it, it's some little things, right? Where, um, you know, yeah, if you're replacing roof, yes, that's a little bit more of an investment, but you look at those opportunities to be like, there, there are ways to do that better. Um, we can, uh, put that into our codes. We know what we normally see. We can affect that into our building codes and like, uh, for thunderstorms as well. I mean, it could be a simple thing like shutting your interior doors, right? And that, a lot of people don't really think, well, what in the world does that have to do with anything? But as we'll talk, as we get into like the severe mm -hmm. um, components there, the things that we've seen play out, um, that can actually help keep the wind compartmentalized should it get into your home because that can cause structural failures in your roof and walls. So it's just a little thing like that that can make a big difference. You don't you don't have to like rebuild your home. There are things you can do when ready garage doors. We'll get to those as well. Right. So yeah, like you mentioned, there aren't like life altering things that you have to do. We just have to build smart and, and build and understand that sometimes you might see those extreme events and like, are we covered in those as well? Because that's something if we are seeing more of, we really do need to make sure that we're prepared for that. Ian, let me turn to you about hail. Now, when we spoke in, in the fall, we were talking about uh, your famous quote from Rodney Dangerfield about uh, hail not getting respect. But hail has been speaking rather loudly uh, over the course of the last few months here in 2023. What are your observations? What are we concerned about? And, and, and how can we build with hail in mind? Yeah, so say so hail, you know, it, it's an aggregate problem. It, it's no, you know, a hailstorm going over Dallas, San Antonio, Denver, yet that's going to be a billion dollar event. But when you take hailstorms over the course of really every single day for six weeks, you're just going to start piling up the dollars from, from roof replacements. And, and this year, you know, we're coming off of what would be considered two pretty down years in terms of if you look at it, it as hail days. So number of days in the year that we had hailstorms present. Well, if you look at reports, we're hovering right around average. There's a bit of a human bias there in terms of how we capture hail reports. But from a hail day perspective, we're on a pretty good pace. Um, and we've seen some, some suburban loss events already take shape across DFW, the St. Louis Metro. We had the, the suburbs of Chicago have also dealt twice with, with hail so far this year already. Uh, outskirts of Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska dealt with it uh, last week. Um, throw in Wichita, Kansas, and you start rattling them off, right? And Florida, which is not a place where we would sort of expect that kind of severe weather, but we've seen pretty um, uh, damaging hail across Florida with, with even you know, hail sizes up two, two and a half inches, which is very big for that, that part of the world. Mm -hmm. So all that adds up. And unfortunately, our roofing materials aren't really, they're just not designed for it. And if you think about building codes, we'll, we'll go ahead and head over to building codes. There's only one city in the country that has anything to do with hail in their building code, and it's Fort Collins, Colorado. Only city, period. It's not, it's not in, you know, it's not in the IRC. It's not in the IBC. There's not even a hail risk map. So we don't put it into our building codes because, you know, typically it's not a big life safety issue. That's not, you know, that's what codes are generally designed for, even though we're moving toward loss prevention and energy efficiency and all those kinds of things. But hail, when you add it all up, 
you know, you're in a 10 billion plus problem every single year. And unfortunately, we're just seeing materials that, that can't handle it. Um, and so you, you throw that together year after year. And, and, and this year, you know, we're kind of back to maybe normal or above normal, but coming off a, a couple of down years, it sort of looks like, oh, whoa, it's back. Um, even though the dollar losses, if you just look even back, uh, the, you know, we, we just got a lot of homes in the way and, and our roofing materials don't age very well. And this is the outcome that you get. Um, and our programs at IBHS have been driven by pretty much all of that. Like, can we tackle all of that? Can we figure out about the hailstorms? Can we simulate it in the lab? Can we find better ways to test the materials? Sarah, an observation from you um, about hail. Yeah, and I think Ian kind of made a good point about, you know, the building codes and the life safety thing. So I, I come from a, a career as a broadcast meteorologist talking about disasters covering the lead up, the forecast, the aftermath, and all the destruction that follows. And I mean, I will say until I got here, I didn't fully understand the hail problem myself. I wasn't talking about it the same way. I mean, I, I would look at, um, you know, to see this big thunderstorm and supercell that looks like it's got a really good hail core on it. And I'd see hail reports come in. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if it's like golf ball or larger, like baseball hail. And I look at it and it's only like nickel or pea-sized tail or something like that. And I'm like, oh, it's just nickel size, whatever. Well, we've actually found out here that in the aggregate, small hail is just as impactful as maybe one larger hailstone event um, or hailstorm that has larger stones um, striking your roof and that kind of thing. But it doesn't, as Ian pointed out, it doesn't really get the attention because it's not as visually compelling as when, say, a tornado moves through a town and you see the destruction and you can you have an emotional response to that and you're like, you, you know that there's been great like economic loss, but you're thinking about the personal aspect, the disruption to lives and potentially li lost lives. You don't see that in hail, but it also is a large loss driver. And that's something that at IBHS as a whole, we're focused in doing is, yes, we want to make sure that codes are implemented properly for those life safety concerns, but also to reduce loss in general, because homeowners, that affects um, that affects how much you pay for insurance down the road, because it, it just everything factors in, right? And so reducing loss and, and reducing disruption to families, that's why we're all about here. And hail, while maybe not visually compelling or a life safety issue, it is a big loss driver and something that we really need to fix because it, it does, like I say, it, it does disrupt our lives. We just might not see it as overtly. Yeah. Small things are oftentimes big mm -hmm. things. Um, Ian, I'll turn to you. Let's stay with hail for a moment here. Is it possible that what we've seen play out across the country in 2023 relative to hail, does it continue or does it intensify the change in the conversations that are being had across the country, even perhaps relative to building codes, are the conversations changing because of what we're seeing happen in real time because of all the damage that hail is causing? Well, I, I think it can. Um, Fort Collins, there was two kind of drivers to when they, they actually went ahead and, and did something with their building code. One was a big hailstorm, a um, lot of damage. But they also have a green building initiative, and they really were just tired of putting all this roofing material straight into landfills. So you had the combination of a, a, a bad season with big losses and the fact that they were moving toward this, this new green building initiative. It all just merged, and it's like, hey, this is a no-brainer. Let, let's do something about this. And they did. Unfortunately, no one else has really taken that on and, and really pushed it uh, further. Um, materials are getting better. Uh, we've shown that through our testing. There are options all the way from asphalt shingles up to the metal, concrete tile, and even the new composites at really all price ranges. Um, so kudos on the manufacturing side. 
Unfortunately, we're just not seeing the big growth in market share to, to try to take a, a bite out of the dollar problem uh, and then throw in the aging of materials and that kind of thing. And, and we, we, you know, Sarah, you mentioned the small hail problem. Um, we've sort of learned if you can simulate these high concentrations, I'm talking 500,000 hailstones per square foot, it actually does shorten the life, especially your asphalt shingle roof specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't realize that. And these storms are a lot more common now that we've gone out year after year making measurements um, of, of what hail looks like. This all of a sudden was like, oh, this, this is a real thing. And we've always wondered kind of where the loss gap was. If you looked at just big hailstorms that produce, you know, inch and a half, two inch type hail events and beyond, the big behemoth stuff that we all see on social media, mm -hmm. there was always a gap in our ability to kind of predict loss and understand it. Well, this actually filled that gap. Our understanding just jumped up because we realized these kind of events, they, they happen a lot more common. They're your run-of-the-mill hailstorm that's producing, you know, 500 hailstones per square foot that's eh, maybe an inch or so. Mm -hmm. But it, it can do a number, especially on an aged roof, and, and cut down on the lifespan of, of the roof that's over your head. And people, I'll, I'll add to that a little bit, people might also not think, like, if you live in a place like Dallas or something like that, where you get hailstorms each year, and like, some of your neighbors, you may have replaced your roof um, every three years, for, you know, for in a cycle or something like that, and you're thinking, well, you know, we're just going to replace it anyways, what's the point in, in upgrading to, you know, that different shingle, but it, it really does, over the life of the roof, it can make a difference, but it's just understanding that and having that educational piece to know that there is something else that's available out there that can better withstand that, so you're not replacing your roof every three to five years, mm -hmm. um, your neighbor's not doing the same, um, and so, again, it's just one of those things that um, we at IVHS focus very heavily on, and as we take that research, like Ian was talking about, and filling those knowledge gaps, we want to do that for um, our, our members, and we also want to do that for homeowners and business owners who are making those decisions and trying to make better ones for, for the life of their home and business. And now I understand why, uh, Ian, in, in your case in particular, uh, why you've been pounding the desk so much about hail over the last decade plus. And, and, and to me, it's not, it's not a happy thing that what you've been sermonizing about, you and your wife, Tanya, who's at NIST now, it's not a happy thing that it's playing out this way, but you've been consistent with shouting from the rooftops that hail is a problem. Yeah, the, the amount of material that it's just getting taken off homes and replaced because of hail, it, it's tremendous. And it, it, it's just as Sarah, Sarah really pointed it out, right? It's not front in your face when there's a big severe weather outbreak. We're always going to see someone standing in front of the most severe damage, usually from a tornado, and not in front of an asphalt shingle roof that's just had its life cut in half by a hailstorm. That that doesn't necessarily play, but when you add it up, um, when we talk about protecting life and property, well, that, that you know the property side matters, and, and it's to the tune of ten plus billion dollars now year after year. And if anyone's replaced a roof in the timelines you have to in these events, I, th there's nothing fun about this. And if you, you look at you know, folks in Dallas, that you, you put pool noodles on cars because you're so frustrated about the hail. That just tells you people's mindset, right? Like, I'm done with this. I don't want to do this yeah. again. And that often really does change people's belief systems about, oh, I'm going to go figure out what to do about this problem. So, yeah, we just need people to think a little bit harder. And, and, and again, kudos to manufacturers. There's a big spectrum of products that can do the job now. Um, and I want to believe, I, th I think we played a pretty big role in that here. 
we just now need to find those nudge factors to get more and more of those materials. And whether that's codes or various types of incentives, nudge factors, grants, whatever you want to call it, if we can bring more to bear on this particular peril, um, we, we can we can do a lot of good. I think there's a lot of potential to to mitigate here, um, and we can talk about the other hazards that come with severe weather because there's similar themes that can play. But um, like anything else, there's there's challenges as well. Yeah, and, and the last thing I'll add there on on hail is that you know Ian's been talking about the research we've been doing. I mean, this is you know you can go on our website and ibhs.org and you can find um, these hail ratings that he's talking about. Where this is the one, this is the only product testing that we do here at IBHS, and we've really developed that relationship or those relationships with the manufacturers over the years because of the testing and the insights that we've been able to give to the industry. So as Ian noted, the kudos there, um, it's because we've had scientists working very closely with them here on campus, Tanya and Ian being one of them, and then our current scientists that are here as well. Um, so we have a few products that we do provide ratings for based on our test standards that we've developed here at IBHS because we can make real hail here in the lab that is very akin to the hardnesses and the densities uh, that uh, that you're going to find in the field and also how those impact materials. That's what we do. We do that impact testing here where uh, shingle panel after shingle panel after shingle panel in, in all different kinds of roof types, uh, we can do those repeatable impacts of the same types of hail and see what happens. And it's developing this knowledge base, this data set that allows us to say something statistically about how they perform. And we can then have these conversations with manufacturers that then say, okay, well, my score is this based on your hail ratings that I see, but how do I improve it? What can we do better? And we've seen those changes made. And I think there's some other ways that we can do that um, going down the road that we'll probably uh, get into here. But um, but that's kind of some of the background stuff that Ian's talking about that helped to get us here, but all, all very important and, and really tries to help people um, every day. Right. We have taken steps over the, the past decade plus and mm -hmm. and not to pat ourselves on the back yeah. but the work that's been done here at IBHS has had a real impact mm -hmm. uh, in what we see play out with manufacturers and what we see play out that's products that are being placed on people's roofs right. there are changes being made and it's encouraging and the conversations are still going to let people know that there are things we can do that even though hail is not as sexy as what we're getting ready to talk about yeah. Um, it's a problem, and that's mm -hmm. encouraging to know that our work is doing that. Let's transition to tornadoes now, and boy, tornadoes have been something else. Yeah. Um, I don't even know where to start with <laughs> with tornadoes here, but uh, what have we seen play out? Let, give me somewhat of a, a meteorological analysis, Sarah, first, mm -hmm. and then we'll sort of talk about building colds and, and all that sort of trickles down as mm -hmm. a result of that. Yeah, so as we kind of alluded to earlier in the episode, we've had very progressive patterns this year that have brought these uh, powerful storm systems. Um, we've got those ingredients that are all coming together, um, and we've had some, unfortunately, devastating tornadoes. Um, I believe I saw a stat uh, the other day where we've had a record number of tornadoes up to this point in the year. We're totaling over 400 mm. um, at this point. In any given year, you see on average about 1,250 tornadoes. Um, and we've also seen um, those fatality numbers tick up. Right, to where we're having, a, I know one of the more impactful ones that really got, you know, us kind of talking here at the lab and kind of got me fired up about a few things that we'll get into today um, was the Rolling Fork, Mississippi tornado that just devastated that town. Um, and just kind of seeing things that unfolded, I uh, had this you know, very strong EF4, EF3, EF4 tornadoes this year, and then even take one that's that strong to also do a lot of damage to your home and really disrupt your life. 
Um, but yeah, we've we've really had a, a busy, um, severe season all through the winter, never really let up. Uh, and then the spring, we saw it get amped up again and spread back into the plains and then continue to impact the southeast. But um, as we kind of alluded to earlier as well, with the changes in the tornado footprint, right, we're seeing this increased frequency moving further east where you know, people used to talk about Tornado Alley, and that was the higher frequency areas that saw tornadoes. But what we've seen in recent decades is that shift a little bit east um, into the southeast and also into the Ohio Valley Midwest to where it's not really that Tornado Alley. I, I don't even know if it's a tornado blob, pretty much, you know, the plains and then into these areas. Um, it doesn't mean tornadoes are going away in the plains, but we are seeing an uptick in the frequency in these new areas. The issues with those are that we now have more vulnerable infrastructure, aging infrastructure, more people in the path, so potentially uh, impacting uh, more people and more structures as well. That's a little bit of that expanding bullseye effect um, where we basically see this uh, urban sprawl, as Ian talked to, um, and now we've got more targets essentially. So that's really what we've seen play out um, in, in even in areas where you don't really think like, I mean, I'll jump back to hail really quick, like in Chicago, where you had these hailstorms. I mean, we've also had uh, several tornadoes in Iowa, northern Illinois um, earlier this year as well. So um, it has been a very busy year, but we're also looking at that that tornado fatality number. And that one's a little bit higher as well. And that one certainly um, is uncomfortable and unfortunate to have to report on. Right. Ian, what's your stance on, on what we've seen here, your position on what we've seen here in, in, in the tornado space? Yeah, it's certainly, you know, Sarah hit it. it it's, we've seen the uptick that the, you know, above average to high end. Um, we had one at our Mississippi outbreak that we mentioned back and I, I believe it was late March. It might have been the early April. They, they all start to even have kind of merged together, um, was in the top 10 all time as the final numbers came out, stretching really from the upper Midwest all the way down to the Southeast. Um, again, I think it highlights some of the climate findings that, that folks like Harold Brooks have found where we're seeing more tornadoes per outbreak day. Um, that's one of them. Um, but again, we've, we've taken these events and, and superimposed them over places that have higher population density. If you, if you ever go out to the Great Plains, there is a large expanses of not a lot, um, that just little towns, but lots and lots of open farmland, ranch land, and even grass prairies. I mean, but if you start to move that, if you think about driving, do the family road trip through the southeast or Midwest, you come upon these small towns much more frequently, right? There's a lot less distance between them, even though they're in rural communities. But we put the severe weather over that environment. So we put more people now into harm's way. That's their, you know, we have the problem with an aging building stock as well. Uh, we have the highest kind of density of mobile manufactured homes in that area as well, throw in a lot of the other socioeconomic factors. And, and unfortunately, the chain of events that was really set in motion 30, 40, I mean, 50 years ago, uh, whether it, the codes, the way we built, ultimately reveal its vulnerability in mass this year. And that's what some of the things, a lot of our hallway conversation at IBHS really go that, that route is, you know, we, this is why the things we're talking about matter 20, 30 years, 40 years from now, because we may make a decision today that changes somebody's life 30, 40 years from now that they didn't even realize it. And so unfortunately in, in this year with tornadoes, all that's come to fruition, unfortunately, in, a, in kind of a, a bit, it's a tragic story this year. And we have seen fatalities tick up again. Um, and, and there, there are things we can do, but I hope people start to realize like the, the decisions we make today are going to affect people of the community for the communities of tomorrow. Yeah. And you hear the phrase too and say, well, we're going to rebuild. And it's like, okay, 
we also need to say we're going to rebuild and build back better, right? Because it's taking those lessons from the structural failures and things, the damage that we see today, and to Ian's point, making that better decision in the way of codes, because there are people like, as, as a homeowner, like, I'm not voting on what the codes are. There are people that, you know, as, as they're updated on these uh, three-year cycles, there are people that are being informed and they're having conversations with uh, a variety of entities, whether the academia, industri industry, uh, finance, whatever. Um, and they're all looking at these kinds of things. Um, and, and then they're the ones that are kind of voting what gets into the International Residential Code, uh, International uh, uh, Building Code. Um, and so it's, it's like he has, Ian said, if somebody else is making that decision for you, like, do you want somebody making that decision for you? Don't you want to have a say? And so I think it's just kind of educating people to know, start asking, like, what does it mean to be built to code? Is that a thing? You know, uh, is there a code in place where you live and that kind of thing? So I think we just want to educate people to understand that we can do it better so that in 20 years, we're not having the same conversation and seeing failures that we should not have seen. And I don't know if you um, are, are about to get into that, but there were certainly some some things that we saw unfold that, say, in an EF3 tornado that I saw in uh, Wynn, Arkansas, and we see these homes that are wiped clean of their foundations. That should not happen in an EF3 tornado if a home is built to any kind of modern building code, which is uh, post-2002, I believe. Because we saw for those kinds of bottom-up structural failures 20 years ago. So if you've got the latest um, building code adopted and enforced, implemented, means that you know we're, we're kind of policing, yes, it is being built to that standard, um, you're not going to see these kinds of failures. So that's the kind of thing, too. Um, oftentimes, our thinking kind of goes to, as Ian has talked and we've, uh, here, around here, is that we go to, oh, the tornado was so bad that there wasn't anything that we could do. These structures didn't stand a chance. So I was like, that is not true. Um, it doesn't have to be a concrete fortress. There are things that we can do to mitigate those. And so I, I don't want to uh, steal thunder too much and get into some of these specifics, but I think we can really kind of break down, like, what are some of these failures that we've seen? I know Ian certainly has um, some background on those. Yeah, let, let's talk about it while we're here. Ian, when we talk about building codes and many conversations that we've had across IBHS, and I want folks to understand, the conversation we're having on this podcast now is the same kind of conversation we have in the break room or we have in the office. So you're really getting a, a bird's eye view of, of what we talk about on a day to day. But we always talk about building codes being an unequivocal way to get widespread, resilient construction. Tell me about why that's so important and how what we've seen in, in the tornado space has illustrated that point. Yeah, m modern building codes, really it started with the, um, the, the, the systematic way of looking at wind mitigation through our codes. Um, there's a national wind mitigation standard that, that became what we call ASCE 7 today back in the, the late 80s. Um, that's the American Society of Civil Engineers and that sets our design standards. It makes its way into what is actually put into the International Residential Code, International Building Code. But it would probably shock you that there are a lot of places across the country that have not adopted those what we call model codes. They're meant to be the model, the best science, the best engineering. We have made unreal progress on the hurricane-prone coast, but that has not translated its way into the middle of the U.S. that are dealing with the severe convective windstorm, whether it's tornadoes, derechos, you name it, whatever. Um, doesn't for, for us in this space, wind is wind. Um, and and. We just have not seen that kind of progress in terms of the adoption. A lot of times it's left to local jurisdictions. And, and Dr. Stephen Strader and I kind of, he coined this phrase, 
that local jurisdictions, especially ones that don't may, maybe not have a major tax price, it's roads or codes. How, how can you make a community make that choice? I just don't understand it to put those folks in that kind of position. This is one of the reasons we advocate for adoption and enforcement at the statewide level, because it does free up the resources to make that work. And you're, you're putting these communities in an awful situation to have to make that choice. And unfortunately, when we look at safety standards too, and that's what building codes are, I, I want people to realize that that's what they are there for. We have safety standards on everything from my daughter's toys to her food, to, to baby food. But look at the, we don't do that with building codes. I, I don't understand. And I hope the more we educate people, the more that they'll demand better because we know what to do. And let, let's, let's pivot over to the tornado space. And this is where you get a little bit of unfettered Ian here on our disaster discussions, uh, <laughs> podcast. Yeah. And, and Tornadoes. It, the, there's a there's a two major success stories here. One is the ability to warn people with Doppler radar. That's a huge success. We know where those areas of rotation are in thunderstorms. We can provide good lead time. Two, modern building codes. We've been able to almost eliminate fatalities in single-family homes built to modern building codes. Now, that does not mean there is not damage, and those buildings may still be a total loss. But from a life safety perspective, me going in my basement that's right over there, I can survive most tornadoes, maybe all of them, um, or your interior room or your bathroom. You have that ability. But unfortunately, when we, we look at things like the, the mobile home manufacturer problem, we have not changed the, the fatality rates at all. None. Zero. Everywhere else, we've done a masterful job. And we still have issues, you know, people out on roadways. I mean, you, we can talk about the tornado impact there. Flood, also a problem. People driving into to flooded roads, things like that. But from a building perspective, we've done a lot. And it's a big success story. It's not so much about stronger codes. Now, we can talk about the, the loss prevention elements. And, and we can get to some of that with roofs, garage doors, siding, that kind of stuff. But from the life safety perspective, it's just using the tools we have, right? Like we have this great set of tools. Why should we not use it? Um, and so that's, unfortunately, this season really, really has, has put a spotlight or a magnifying glass. This came to fruition, sadly. And like I mentioned in, in just a minute ago, these were things that were set in motion 20, 30, 40 years ago that somebody made that choice um, to evaluate your risk for you. And um, you see the the catastrophic outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll ping on that a little bit. You know, we talked about um, you know kind of that awareness of, of building codes, but we we've seen too, like when these events unfold. You know, uh, you kind of see, oh look, uh, another small town, unfortunately, homes demolished. You know, the very few left standing. Um, um, the ones that are just pieces, you know, maybe a wall here, a wall there, and kind of well, 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 what was the year of construction? We're like, okay, 1980s construction, you know, and like we know some of the vulnerabilities that come with that. Sometimes they're even older, and then when you go back and look at codes and pair that together, and you see like a place like Rolling Fort, Mississippi, they had no code in place, um, no residential code, no code. Um, so you're like at some point, like to Ian's point, 40, 50 years ago, somebody made that call. It's like, no, this is good. You know, we're, you know, we're okay. Um, and so we unfortunately have to bear that out. And so it's just a story that we've seen time and time again that it's really difficult to, to understand. Um, and two, it's not, some people I'm thinking back at home, they might be thinking, well, you know, stronger codes. It's like, well, you know, we've seen like many of you probably saw the Hurricane Michael home that survived right there on the coast. It was a, 
you know, multi-million dollar home a, a doctor had built, you know, you've got these uh, poles and supports that go 40 feet into the ground, et cetera. It doesn't have to be a concrete fortress to be able to withstand the, the magnitude of a tornado EF0, 1, 2, even maybe an EF3. It's all about connections, right? It doesn't have to be a conc reinforced concrete fortress. Now, the EF4 and 5 tornadoes, as Ian will tell you, you're going to see some level of damage because, yes, they are very intense. But it's these total losses or these lower end failures that lead to more catastrophic total losses at these EF3 ranges, even EF4. That <clears throat> excuse me, that we can mitigate against. So it, it, all, it is all about like roof connections, right? Connecting the wall to the, uh, the roof to the walls properly, connecting the walls to the floor and connecting the foundation, everything, right? That's called continuous load path that Ian can probably share more about. Um, but that's the uh, structure's ability, tying everything together and then allowing it to take the wind loads because as wind blows up against a home, it's the pressure forces, there, there ends up being negative pressure on the outside of this home. It's literally trying to pull the walls out and pull the roof up. So when you allow wind to get into the home, whether it's through a garage door that is not wind rated, as most of them are not in the United States, even in areas where they are codified that you should have them, they still don't have the proper wind rated garage door installed. Allowing the wind into the home is just like blowing up a balloon in your home. So now the wind is inside the home, pushing out on the walls and up on the roof. And now it's working with the external forces that are trying to pull the home apart. So if those connections aren't in place properly, and the first one would have been the garage door, that was the most vulnerable part if it wasn't wind rated, uh, that's when the wind gets into the home and we can see those more significant structural failures like partial roof loss. You lose part of the roof, then the walls and the rest of the structure are um, at risk. Um, also, I was talking about those uh, clean slabs earlier. That's just poor wall-to-floor connections where, you know, if you just had those a couple bolts that, that are around the foundation of the home that are cemented in, that's going to hold everything down. What we often see is something called cut nails where we just have these, you know, smooth nails that are tapped into the, the foundation and they just literally are pulled right out. It literally shoves the home off the foundation and, well, what happens when you, you take a home? We've shown it in our test chamber. If you go and watch any of our videos online, we can take a whole house off of a slab and that's what load path protects against. It's that floor connection. And so it's all about connections. It doesn't have to be a concrete for fortress. If you know you have a well-built reinforced brick home, more power to you. That's even better, right? But it doesn't have to be this exorbitant, um, exorbitantly priced home. Uh, resilience is more accessible than you think. It's just knowing what pieces come into play to give you that performance. Ian mentioned the mobile home mm -hmm. issue. How do we address that? Because it's, it's a little personal for me, yeah. too, because coming from a small town in South Carolina, as I did, I'm used to seeing quite a few mobile homes. But yeah. let's face it, there's an issue there. Yeah. How do we address that relative mm -hmm. to these storms that we're seeing play out in real time? Yes. I mean, I, I spent the first 10 years of my life living in a, in a mobile manufactured home. Now, now mobile homes nowadays, we don't, they don't really manufacture mobile homes anymore. But back in the day, that's what they were. And now they're manufactured homes. But either way, the key focus is that you can build, you can have a manufactured home that when installed properly, anchored properly, grounded properly, strapped down, it can perform up to the level of a single family home. We saw that in Hurricane Ian in Florida. Um, it can happen, but um, what happens is we were talking about codes, right? Um, we also have codes for manufactured housing, but those can vary widely across the country and they're zoned differently. Here in the Southeast, uh, you might not necessarily find them in mobile home parks or manufactured home parks and communities. They might be just dotted along the landscape. And so there are varying levels of tie downs, 
um, strapping, uh, anchoring, um, even if they are maybe inspected for it. I've even heard stories where they're inspected for it and still not properly anchored. And then strong enough wind comes home and it uh, comes along and it literally just rolls it, you know, rolls the, the structure itself. That's the life safety concern because th- those, those homes, I mean, anytime you roll something like that, it's just not going to stand up well. Um, and so it's, it's trying to find out how can we standardize that better because Ann will tell you it's a multi-billion dollar problem that we've got to fix. We know we have to answer for it. It's just where do we start? Because we know that it, it is a vital part of multifamily housing that isn't going away. It is accessible housing that some people, that is their only option. Yeah. So we have to find a way to make it safer for them to be able to, to live in those homes. Ian, jump in there. Yeah, th- this is a, a topic I think near and dear to a, a lot of our hearts at IBHS because of the the mission and what's actually on the wall. If you ever come see the the research center, our our core values sit right there in front of us as we walk in every single day. Um, this is a problem. The here and now problem. We're, we we have aged mobile homes you know, built in the '60s, '70s that are very different from a structural perspective than what what are constructed today. Um, so the short term is we, we've got to do better in the community shelter aspect, whether that's larger scale community shelters or engage some of the faith-based organizations. I, I think about a story that Tanya, my wife, told when she was a kid. They would go to their church. Uh, they weren't comfortable. This is in near Wichita, Kansas. Um, and they weren't, they didn't feel safe in their home. Um, and so they would go to their nearby church. So step one, can we, can we foster the, the, the shelter aspect? We're going to have to do that. That's the here and now part. Two, for families, and I know I hate saying this and it makes me feel terrible, on those two nights of the year that you have a high severe weather risk, make a plan to be somewhere else if you live in a, a mobile home. Um, and Sarah hit the sort of the proverbial nail or anchor on the head. There's so many weak links in that whole chain that's different, um, especially on the anchoring side. And when that bottom-up failure occurs, the threat to your life safety is is vastly increased. If the roof comes off, you see how you can kind of keep yourself tucked in an interior room and you'll be okay. But if the walls fail first or the thing rolls, the chances of survival go down drastically. So there's some some things right up front that we need to think about. Next step long term is, is what is the solution? Um, we know we have an affordable housing problem as a whole. Uh, IBHS released its multifamily fortified standard. We hope that is a good step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen, again, great progress in the coastal environment. I'm going to give a shout out to my home state of Louisiana that has taken that and ran with it. Good for you guys, uh, or good for y'all. I guess I should, should use the proper lingo. Um, <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, good for y'all. Um, and and But unfortunately... I think we are so much up against this concept that with tornadoes, we just can't do anything about and that they're all mile wide bulldozers. And yes, there are a select few of those tornadoes that are that, but most are not. And if you take, I'm going to use a stat. If you look at the Moore EFI from 2013, that was one of the most surveyed tornadoes in modern history, that in Joplin, Missouri. So if you look at more, about 42 to you know, call it 46 percent, you know, just under 50 of the damage modes, the peak damage modes that those survey teams found, we have a solution for. Whether that's in something like the modern code that's present in, say, most of Florida or the IBHS fortified standard, one of the most violent tornadoes we've dealt with, we have solutions for almost half of it. So 
I really struggle, and that was the impetus that Moore put in their code, but we just can't get other folks to, to see this. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually pivot there to the Norman tornado of this year, because Norman did not adopt the code that Moore did. And what we saw was this, again, poor performance, garage door failure, roof structural damage in Norman. However, there was a builder that builds both in Moore and Norman who was building to that Moore code. Well, the only thing he didn't do in Norman was the garage doors. Garage doors still failed, but guess what? The roof system stayed intact and the building performed. We know what to do. And, and yes, there's a cost. I, I'm not going to lie to you guys. And, and it's about a buck fifty a square foot. If you want to go from nothing to the more code, which is essentially Miami Dade, call it fortified, like, whatever, there is a cost. Are we paying now for that small cost that's going to, you know, our real estate market goes up and down way faster than that? Or are we going to pay later when a bad event happens and we are now out of our home for a better part of nine months, 10 months, or maybe we don't have one, those kinds of things. That's the choices that we're looking at here that are going to shape our communities of tomorrow. Yeah. And Ian, I, I think, you know, we've talked about this. Uh, everybody's focused on, and, and look, I understand. I'm a homeowner, right? I mean, I, I spend my weekend doing little projects. I just installed my first lighting fixture because I was like, I like how it looks, right? I have granite countertops in there now, right? But I understand people want to make their inside of their home look nice. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you just think about it from a cost perspective, it could be maybe a difference in me getting that, um, you know, nice little extra closet or something or nice extra laundry room or maybe that really the more expensive marble slab that I really want in my kitchen or, you know, ring shank nails. Um, anchoring uh, a wind rated garage door, which is not that expensive mm -hmm. uh, when you consider the price of the home. So it's like when you look at the cost comparatively, it's like what you get. You're talking about the structural soundness of your home and it might seem minuscule and you may go your entire life and never get hit by a tornado. And we kind of talked about this yesterday and that hurricanes are, are different. You live along the Louisiana coast you're going to get a hurricane probably multiple times in your lifetime if you if you live there if you spend any meaningful time there you're going to get hit by a tropical system almost every year so maybe that's why mentally it's easier for people to say well we can build to that because we get them all the time and it's a way of life and we're going to build to that way of life a tornado is a point in time it's the needle in the haystack like more people are going to be impacted by the the forward flank or the body of the storm, basically, if it's a supercell and getting heavy rain, hail, high winds that could also do damage. Um, but a very small fraction of those are actually going to see the tornado. But those that do, it can be highly impactful and devastating and even deadly. But it's one of those things that are like, well, I'm the needle in the haystack. What's the risk? Your perception of risk is much different if you live along the Louisiana coast because you deal with it constantly. You may only deal with one tornado in your lifetime, unless you live in more Oklahoma, in which you, you know, you're like, yeah. oh, it wasn't an EF5. Okay. So what, mm -hmm. you know, but, um, I think it's just kind of that, that awareness and it's not necessarily the fault of these homeowners and, and people that live in these areas, right? Because there's so many things that are important to us and our families on the daily. Right. We talk about this in climate change where it wasn't until our messaging started changing. Like this is not something that's going to affect, you know, just polar bears in the Arctic. This is having an impact on how likely it is that your home will flood in the next big event. Um, that's a kitchen table issue that now that has an immediate impact on me and my family. And with a tornado, like with a hurricane, you might have days lead up. A tornado, you might know that severe weather is in the forecast and there's a potential for that. But the pre preparation lead up for the actual tornado event could be minutes in some cases. 
um, or, or seconds if, you know, depending on where you are and, you know, if you don't have a way to get those warnings. So it's that response time, right? So people focus on what is the most immediate concern and threat, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we also don't want to forget that this is a potentially high impact thing that it is worth building against because nobody wants to think about the worst day of their lives, but it's you also don't want to be caught off guard and unprepared. That's why we hit storm prep so much here at IBHS, but also that prep doesn't just start seasonally. It also starts building our communities and the homes of the future. It seems so simple, right? Being around here at IBHS because we have these conversations all the time. This is what we need to do. This is why we need to do it. This storm is an example of why we need to build this way and why building codes need to be here and why these things need to be implemented. But I'm struck by the fact that as 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 upfront as our science is and as available as we've tried to make it, not just us, but so many others around the country and the world, there's still, in so many cases, there seems to be this tension, it, in, in particular with tornadoes, as you just mm -hmm. mentioned, because they're just like this this freak thing, mm -hmm. this random thing. And yeah. well, you know, yeah. the good Lord must have mm -hmm. intended for it to just be this way in state X. How does that, how do we change that? How do we, how do we combat that mm -hmm. to make sure that we are actually recognizing the power that we have mm -hmm. in these situations? Well, you know, and I think it starts with, with communication and getting that message to the right people. Um, before I say this, I will say, um, while I was still at the Weather Channel, I, I was previously there before starting here and it was a, um, a tornado outbreak that occurred in Alabama um, in late April of 2021. And it was um, it was a National Weather Service damage survey that was talking about people that were in some manufactured homes. I believe the tornado was an EF3 or, or 4 potentially. Um, but it talked about some, some well-built homes that were damaged, but also um, a manufactured home, a uh, couple of homes there um, that were damaged. But the family survived because they got the message that severe weather is in the forecast. They, as Ian said, planned to be somewhere else. They went to a nearby sturdy structure to ride out the storm and they, their lives were saved, even though their homes were destroyed because they got that message. So that was just so encouraging. It was like all these things that we're saying constantly, you know, on, on the airwaves as a broadcast meteorologist, that's getting to people. The message is getting out that like these structures are unsafe for you to be in. If you're in a manufactured home, right? Single family, we, we know that there's different messaging for, for each of those, but particularly manufactured housing that we know is so vulnerable. We've gotten the message out that people know they need to find a better shelter and plan ahead. And so I think one thing that we're focused on here um, in working with um, organizations or people within organizations like NIST, the American Meteorological Society, um, engineers as well, is to communicate more with the broadcast weather community, right? And I, that's obviously very near and dear to my heart because as I've spent the last year and a half here at IBHS, I understand how much we never were talking about. Mm. What, how, how did the damage happen? We knew the National Weather Service had to go out and do a damage survey. And it's like, well, you see the damage, but how well was the home built? And you're like, well, you look at a home, it's like, well, what is a well-built home? Because just because it's brick doesn't mean that the connections were there. We've seen garage doors fail and then entire brick walls be just pushed over with half the roof deck lost because those connections weren't in place. So, um, so there's, there's just much more, there's much more nuance in the phrase well-built than you realize. You can't, you can't do an MRI of a home and see, well, do I have uh, anchor bolts in my foundation? I just bought a new town home and I moved here. I was like, mm -hmm. As my foundation anchored, it was like, do I have a, I actually do have a wind-rated garage door, so I was very proud about that. Um, but I think the key thing is getting that message out to those people so that we can talk about damage differently. 
when we have reporters that go out and they're looking at the devastation rather than saying this storm was just so bad, these homes didn't stand a chance. Let's reframe the conversation and look at that and just look at a home and be like, oh, there's the garage door totally buckled in. A portion of the roof deck is lost. We're not asking people to diagnose damage on the spot because, yes, there still needs to be a careful engineering eye looking at that, applying the proper damage indicators according to the EF scale, um, which is the enhanced Vegeta scale by which we rate tornadoes, and getting those accurate ratings. But we also just need to pay attention to those kinds of things more and just start asking the right questions like, well, you got to wonder where, you know, somehow the wind got into this home. How did that happen? It's just reframing the way we talk about damage and what could have been done to get rid of this whole, there was nothing we can do. And the phrase that we say, you're not powerless. That's our messaging to people Mm -hmm. all the time. It's just reframing the conversations to get us answering or asking the different questions to find out what actually caused this. Interesting. Ian, I want to turn to you and kind of set you up with this statement. You can have an answer, but if the question that you asked was not the right question, then even though you got an answer, it's not the right answer. Yeah. And, and I actually, I, I want to, I'm going to loop back to our podcast before this one with uh, Commissioner Fowler from Alabama. Uh, he actually laid it out. Go listen to that, y'all. Just, just go take a listen Great. because he laid it out about the partnerships that you have to build. But the importance, once you do that, of having everyone pulling the wagon in the same direction, it can work. Alabama and coastal Alabama, and now it's spreading with, you know, even into northern Alabama coming off the 2011 super outbreak uh, from a fortified program perspective. They've proved it works. Wind mitigation programs can exist. They can create high demand. I mean, they talk about how their grant programs, they're like having people staying up all night to, to click the mouse when the grant program opens up. So you've not only created a market where there's high demand, they walk you through the success. And, and I'll be honest, right now, it's, it's probably the best that there is. It's a model that can work in all sorts of places, but you got to get the partners across the board all pulling, as, as, as Commissioner Fowler said, pulling the wagon in the right direction, all in the same direction. Um, so I think that's right. And I, I come back to something we've talked about on, on this podcast is the decisions that, that get that set in motion a chain of events that may not play out till 20, 30 years from now. Um, and I ask folks to think, do you want somebody else making that choice? Um, and really start to, to think about that with regard to your building codes in your local community. Uh, if you want to know what code your house was built under, go to the uh, Federal Alliance for Safe Homes Flash, their inspect to protect tool you can put in your address, you can see it. Um, and that'll tell you some things that you may be able to do. So if your home was built from the 60s to the 80s, you are the perfect candidate for a fortified roof when you have to re-roof. That's one of the most vulnerable eras of construction we face, but we know you got two good chances when you re-roof and if you have a garage, go into the garage door, uh, a wind-rated garage door, preferably one that's you know rated for 130 or better. Um, you're a great candidate for that. If you say you live on the coastal environment, you're, you have a newer home, you're in great shape. You can look for some of those little things, maybe window protection, shutters, or just caulking, things like that. So. Knowing some of those things, and we're here to help at IBHS. That, that's what we're here to do. And I hope we can do more of that is tell people, what are you the best candidate for? What, what's going to work for your home? Um, and then again, we have some bigger problems that, that come with some of the things we already talked about uh, in this show that, that we need to focus on and get those right partners pulling the wagon in the right way.
final thought from you on this mm -hmm. before we transition, Sarah? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it, it all goes down to, I, I've mentioned it several times, it's just educating people on what's available to them out there and just kind of understanding that um, there is a better way. It's not prohibitive for everybody. Yeah, there are certainly areas that we've got to make um, strides in, right? We've got to make uh, improvements in understanding the manufactured housing problem and how we're going to solve that because we need a solution now. Um, until we can get that solution structurally for those um, that I really think, as Ian pointed out, the, the community sheltering and just kind of that planning ahead. But also, we got to remember to also help those, right? Because we need to help put the infrastructure in place and give them a place to go. It's like saying, okay, we'll evacuate, but I'm not going to tell you how to, how, to, how to keep yourself safe, you know, if you, if you leave your home. But I think just working with um, those local organizations, uh, whether it be nonprofit or places of worship or, or other places, uh, local schools that can become shelters or something like that, you know, that can be um, just a safer place to go and just getting those communities to react. I mean, the issue is that if you're in a place like Alabama, Mississippi, um, Louisiana, Arkansas, where they're frequented by tornadoes at you know any given time of the year, that might be something that's more top of mind. But in places like in the Ohio Valley, or we also still have um, uh, vulnerable infrastructure, like Indiana, Illinois, um, parts of the Midwest as well, um, it's all those things that might not be top of mind, but it's something to consider. And like, how can we work together um, to be better at that? Um, but I think the biggest thing is just kind of increasing awareness and having people understand. Um, they can ask for better. There are things they can do and they're not powerless. And, and yeah, it, we can, we can do this right. Let's just use these, um, opportunities. Um, even though they may be tragic, let's learn from them and move forward and, and make improvements so that we're not doing this the next time around and what we call break the chain here at right. IVHS. Right. We'll wrap up on this. Um, I'll start with you, Ian, as of the time that this episode is released, hurricane season is underway. Um, any observations or commentary that you can offer based on anything that you're looking at right now as we go forward? What can you share with us there? Yeah, as we kind of look out as to the fifth season, for those of us from the south, uh, hurricane season. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, uh, you know, some of the seasonal forecasts really did note some of the competing factors, and they're kind of hovering in that average to slightly above average season, perhaps. So we got two things that are kind of working not 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 in not in a, a vector that's pointing one way or the other so we got probably a growing el nino we know that's going to really induce some shear over the atlantic basin how strong that becomes by the peak of hurricane season we we don't quite know uh we had this rapid switch toward the el nino uh phase but it's sort of tempered just a little bit at least not on the pace that it was a month or so ago um and then we have a absolutely juiced uh, water temperature, ocean heat content in the Atlantic Basin. Um, so you put a storm under the right atmospheric conditions with that kind of ocean heat, um, we're well above average across most of the basin already. Um, that's gonna set the stage for those rapid intensifying storms if they find themselves in the right spot. That's the question mark, right? Um, you can look at last year, which was a very active season, but we had one meaningful landfall and that was Ian. Uh, in, in southwest Florida. Or you can flip the script over to 1992, which was an absolutely dead season from an activity perspective in an El Nino year. And the infamous A-storm, Hurricane Andrew, which those of us who went through it, whether in South Florida or Louisiana, won't ever forget. That's actually the storm that got me into the weather business. Um, it, it's always the example of the, it, 
you know, we say it only takes one ad nauseum, right? Like over and over again. Y'all are probably sick of us saying that, but it's right. (laughs) Ask someone who dealt with Ian last year. That one storm, you had the worst season you've ever had. That was the most active season you've ever had. Um, Now, so we want folks you know do the, the do the prep work now it saves you the stress when the when things happen but again it's hard to tell right now i think once we get into further into july some of the seasonal forecasts gain skill quite quickly uh, we have a lot more skill in some of those seasonal forecasts as we kind of lock into that summer pattern that's going to hang on to through the early fall and the peak of the season so we'll be able to kind of discern by then is the pattern supportive of say storms that recurve out in the atlantic or maybe some close to home stuff or is El Nino really just, you know, putting putting squash on the atmosphere with a lot of wind shear and we're just, hey, this is going to be a, a below average season. I think folks along the Atlantic and Gulf Coast may want to take a little breather uh, after what we've been dealing with basically from 2017 to now. So uh, fingers crossed that plays out. But again, we got two major competing factors, a developing El Nino and we have uh, really warm Atlantic Basin water temperatures already. So those two are kind of opposite each other. El Nino, meaning for a less active season, the Atlantic Basin ocean conditions say otherwise right now. Yeah, and and I'll just add to that. You know, Ian's talking about prep. You know, we're in the middle of our um our, of our times where we're promoting you to get ready now, right? Where we're inside of uh, 20 days uh, leading up to hurricane season. But as this episode um, airs, we'll we'll kind of be starting it. So um so yeah, just make sure that you're ready and that you're taking those steps. And, and we have um, ready guides for your home and business owners that are on our website, disastersafety.org/hurricane-ready, I believe. Uh, but there you can find some assets. And we talk about some of these mitigation actions, these prep tips that you can do. Um, and to Ian's point. Right. Not, I think sometimes people will ask us, well, what are some cheap and easy ways we can, you know, fix, you know, prevent damage in our homes? Like, well, there are some very low lift, um, low cost things that you can do, but also consider more important, you know, or more impactful things like maybe, um, using your tax return to maybe invest in that wind rated garage door or, uh, take a look at the fortified roof program and, you know, see how old is my roof? Like, does my, does my state, um, or does my insurer have any kind of programs that, that support those mitigation actions like this? These are now those times to start having those conversations with your insurance agents. And we, we talk about this all the time, right? We want people to feel empowered that there are things that they can do. So have those conversations with their insurer. Find out what are some things that I can do um, that you guys might help me with or, or, you know, how can I help ease the burden potentially on my family as we go to these storm seasons? So there are um, assets out for you uh, out there for you. So I encourage you to check those out. Not only can you go to disastersafety.org, there's also IBHS.org. Mm-hmm. You can also follow Sarah on Twitter at yeah. Sarah Dillingham. You can follow Ian on Twitter at ijamanco 33 And uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I hope you've learned something. This is how we talk on the daily. So we wanted to do something different and we're calling this on the radar. And whenever we need an opportunity to just react to what's happening out there in Weatherland, we're going to gather together IBHS folks and just have a powwow, have a conversation. And we've had that today. And Sarah and Ian, I want to thank you both for joining me on the Disaster Discussions podcast here today. Yeah, it's been great, Armand. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's good to be back and uh, glad to uh, sit down and and talk about some of these issues. So yeah, keep an eye out for these on the radar episodes as you see uh, the weather uh, unfold uh, throughout this year and hopefully next. And and again, as I mentioned earlier, check out our, our last podcast that definitely has some relevant info on, on some of the topics that we, we talked up uh, talked about today. So uh, it's uh, great to be back. And yeah, back to you, Armand. Yeah, yeah. We called that episode Committed to Resilience. And that's the hope 
for everybody that the science is applied, that there's a commitment to resilience because the Alabama Fortified Commitment shows us that this thing really works, that we can uh, we can we can save lives and we can save homes and communities and make places uh, safer for, for everybody. And there's nothing more important than that. Mm-hmm. Folks, we want to thank you for joining us on this edition of the Disaster Discussions podcast. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions podcast, an IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at ibhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at Disaster Safety, Facebook at facebook.com slash disaster safety, and on Instagram at IBHS underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening at our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit IBHS.org.